who are first joining us, again, welcome. Uh, we have been going through the book of Colossians, uh, and that's what we're going to be going through, uh, continuing on uh, today. Uh, last week, we covered Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 14. The three main things that we looked at last week uh, were, one, uh, who is the Holy Spirit and what is his role, you know, within the life of every believer? Uh, two, God's will. Like, what is God's will for every believer? Uh, it's a question I think all of us uh, probably asked or thought of at one point or another. Uh, and three, the, the gospel message. You know, what's, what is the gospel message, basically? And so uh, when we looked at the Holy Spirit, you know, we, we talked about how he's God, uh, you know, the third person of the Trinity, and that he is close, right? That if, if the Spirit of God now lives within, within us, uh, which he does, uh, it's, it's kind of hard for God to get even closer to us than that, apart from, you know, when we see him face to face. Right, so like, it is absolutely impossible for the believer to ever be alone, ever, right? because he's, he's always with us. He's physically living inside of us, and that is, not, that is something that we can't take light of uh, that, or that we can't you know, afford to ever forget, that the, that the very Spirit of God lives within every believer, um, that he is also known as the Spirit of Truth, and that he fills us uh, with wisdom and understanding so that we would have this experiential knowledge of, of uh, God's will, uh, that word knowledge that we talked about, uh, Paul isn't saying, I don't want you guys to just know it with your head, but I want you to experience it, you know, tangibly, right? I want you to experience God's will. I want you to experience God's love. So that's what Paul was talking about here, that the Holy Spirit within us gives us that, that ability to experience God's will uh, for each and every one of us. Uh, and then he also empowers us uh, to live the life that God has called us to live. That the, it's the, the power of God within us, the spirit of God within us actually enables us, empowers us to live righteous and holy, uh, holy lives. Uh, we then looked at God's will and write that the will of God for every believer is to live a life that is worthy of and pleasing to him. Uh, and we looked at what that looks like because Paul gave, gave us a list of, of what he, he meant by that, what it looked like to live a life worthy of and pleasing to him. Uh, he mentioned bearing fruit in every good work, uh, growing in the knowledge of God, that word knowledge, again, being that experiential knowledge, growing in this experience uh, of God, um, being strengthened uh, by his power and not our own to, you know, to, to endure and to be able to give thanks. Uh, and again, that being the last one, giving joyful thanks for what it is that God uh, has done. Uh, and we closed out with uh, just basically just what is a quick way that we can all share and know uh, the gospel in verses 12 uh, through 14. Uh, that says, um, And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Right? So if we're thinking of what is a, what's, you know, why do we believe what we believe? Uh, if someone were to ask you, why are you a Christian? What, you know, what, what is this gospel message that I keep hearing of? Verses 12 through 14, quick 30 seconds, you know, elevator pitch, if you want to call it that. Here's the gospel message. This is who God is. This is what he has done. And this is what he is, you know, what he has given us. So for tonight, uh, we're, again, we're uh, obviously we're continuing our study of the book of Colossians. Uh, we're going to be reading um, from verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And this is called the supremacy of the Son. And this is just a nice, uh, a really powerful uh, if you want to call it a, a poem or a hymn or a song or, you know, um, whatever it is that you want to call it, uh, something that Paul writes that, that speaks to the authority, the supremacy uh, of Jesus. Uh, so starting with verse 15, it says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much once again for another day where we can gather, uh, where we can hear from you, where we can fellowship with one another. Uh, Father, I just pray right now for this time as we are talking about your son, your beloved son, help us to see Jesus rightly. Help us to see him for who he really is. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' mighty name that we would hear from you today. We hear your voice. That as we read through your word, Lord, that you would make it make sense to us. That you would help us as Paul has written and prayed. That we would grow in our experiential knowledge of you. That we would experience you. That we would know of your love, not just with our head, but with our heart. That we would know Jesus, not just with our head, but with our heart, Lord. That we would know you, God. Father, we give this time to you. Uh, We pray for those, Lord, who couldn't make it tonight. We just pray wherever they may be, uh, that you would just be with them. Uh, We know that you are, Lord, but I pray that you would just remind them, that that you would nudge them, Lord. Uh, Show them that you really are so close to them, that you've never left them nor forsaken them, that you would speak to them a word in due season, just as you would today for us. Father, we give you this time. We honor you. We bless you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, we all pray. Amen. So again, tonight, the supremacy of the Son, right? And so the, the goal of tonight, who is Jesus? Um, what we're going to look at specifically, um, two main things, and then kind of wrap it up with, you know, what's, what's the point of all of this? And so one, uh, Christ is supreme over everything. Over all creation, Christ is supreme. And then number two, uh, we'll look more specifically at one of the things that he is supreme over, which is his church, the body. So Christ is, is supreme, he is king, he is the authority over everything. Uh, and we'll look at, you know, how do we know that? Uh, and then we're going to look at Christ being supreme over the church and what that means. And then finally, we're just going to wrap it up. Okay, so, so what? What's, what's the point? Uh, Christ, is, Christ is the king over everything. Christ is, is you know, the head of the church. What's, what's the point? All right, so one, Christ is supreme over all things. Uh, how, do we, how do we know that? Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So the Father, unseen. Christ is seen. Now, Christ is the image of the invisible God, meaning that which perfectly displays Christ, or perfectly displays the Father, excuse me. So what Paul is immediately saying right there is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. There's no distinction between, right, there's the the Father is only God and Jesus is some kind of lesser being or something like that. No, no, Jesus is God. God. How do we know that Christ is supreme over all things, that Christ is a ruler over all things, that Christ is, you know, reigns over all things? Because he's God. Point blank. So he doesn't, you know, Paul immediately in this in this poem that he writes, let's he's like, let me make no you know mistake, let me, you know, not butcher the words or anything like that. Christ is God. That's how we know that Christ is supreme over all things, because he's God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. So they are 
distinct from one another. And we know from verse 14 in that same chapter that the word became flesh. That's Jesus. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John chapter 1 is saying the same thing here, that Jesus, this person who came down from heaven and came in the flesh, is God. In the same, in the same book of, of John, all throughout the book of John, Jesus says this. Uh, he says things like, I only say what I hear my father say. I only do as I see my father do. Why? Because I and the father are one. We are one. He says, if you know me, you know him. If you've seen me, you've seen him. Because he is the image of God. He is the word of God. He is God. One of his disciples on the, on the very night where Jesus is about to be arrested, right, right after the Last Supper, and Jesus is teaching them and pouring out all these things to them, uh, Philip, one of them, uh, his disciples, says to him, he's like, Jesus, if you would just show us the Father, that would be enough. And Jesus says to him, he's like, after all this time we've been together, do you still not get it? That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That again, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Jesus, uh, in John chapter 8, as he's arguing with the religious leaders, he says something to them. And again, he does not butcher his words. Uh, they're, they're, they're talking about, you know, um, uh, the, the God, and they're talking about Abraham. And he says to the, to the religious leaders, before Abraham was born, I am. He's using the same name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, I am. And when Jesus says, that was me, he's again saying the same thing. I am the I am. I am God. How do we know that Jesus reigns over everything that jesus is supreme over everything it's because he's god that's it how else do we know that jesus is supreme over everything in that same verse it goes on to say that jesus is the firstborn over all creation some of your translations might say the firstborn of all creation right? which might be a little confusing you know if you if you hear firstborn you might think well doesn't that mean he's created he's the firstborn of creation meaning like he's kind of a part of it. And of course, that wouldn't make any sense. Like, why would God be a part of God's own creation? That doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. And so, okay, so what does that mean then? Uh, the term firstborn uh, or the term like of creation, if your translation says of creation, uh, doesn't mean Christ was created. Firstborn can mean like what we would think it means, you know, biological, my firstborn son, you know, it can, it can mean that. But it can also mean authority. Pull up Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 27. It can also mean having the highest rank. Psalm 89, verse 27 says, And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Right? So this term firstborn isn't talking about like being like biological, it's talking about being the most exalted of the kings of all the earth. It's talking about rank, it's talking about authority. So that term firstborn doesn't have to mean biological. It can mean just authority. Secondly, back in Colossians, when we're talking about of creation, if your translation says of creation, uh, that term of creation doesn't necessarily have to mean, again, a part of creation. Uh, Naz and Robel, your dad was the coach of your soccer team at one point, right? Little League, Little League Soccer. So their dad, Gaitu, he was the coach of their soccer team. Now, that term of that soccer team, the coach of that soccer team, does that mean that Gaytu was actually a part of their soccer team? Like, was he out there playing with the kids? Was he out there running around trying to score or save or anything? No. That term, the coach of that soccer team, means he was the coach over that soccer team. He has authority over it. Right? He's the one that's running it. 
So here, if your translation says that he's the firstborn of creation, doesn't mean that he's a part of creation. Again, it's talking about his authority over it. So firstborn of creation, firstborn over creation, has nothing to do with Christ being created. No, no, no. It's referring to his authority over his creation. Why is Christ supreme over all things? He is God, one. Two, he is the firstborn over of all creation, which again is just a term just referring to his authority or supremacy over it. Number three, Christ, why do we know that Christ is supreme over, over everything? Because he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Christ is not only responsible for creation, all creation is sustained by him. When we create, like if you and I create something, all we're really doing is taking what is already there, rearranging it, mixing it up, or taking it apart, and you know, kind of changing what is already there, and then calling it something new, creating something new. But that's not really creating. We're taking something that's already there and just kind of changing it up just a little bit. When God creates, he takes nothing and makes something. This is what it means when God is responsible for creation. God took nothing and made something. Nothing plus nothing shouldn't equal something, right? It should equal nothing. Nothing plus nothing should, shouldn't give you something. It should give you nothing. Nothing is coming. Right? And there should be nothing there. When God creates, he's able to take nothing and make something. So he's not only responsible for all, for real creation, absolute creation. For us, it's just we're taking something that's already there. If, I, if I'm going to build this thing, I'm going to take the wood that's already there. I'm going to take the metal that's already there, screws that have already been made. I'm just going to put them together and say I've created something new. I didn't really create something. God is able to take nothing and make something. So he's not only responsible for all creation, but it says that he's also the sustainer of all creation, that all things have been created through him and for him, and they are held together by him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, the author in Hebrews has a very similar sentiment. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So God is responsible for creation. Namely, we're speaking of Christ. He's responsible for creation and he's responsible for sustaining all creation. Why does Christ get to have the supremacy over all creation? Why does Christ get to be the ruler over all things? Because he made it and he sustains it. He made it. He puts it all together. He holds it all together. That's why he gets to be supreme over all creation. Last thing on this point, how do we know that Christ is ruler over all things? Because again, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, because all things are for him. God, when he's creating, when, when we're talking about all things are for him, we're not saying that God, okay, you know, he's sitting up on his throne. He's like, you know what? I'm in lack. I, I'm in need of something. You know, I don't have all that I need. I am incomplete. And so I'm going to create a bunch of things so, you know, for me so that I myself would be sustained or I myself might become whole. No. 
God is God before creation. God is God after creation. God is God. God is complete. God is whole. When we're saying that God created all things for him, this isn't to say that he was in lack. No, this is to say that all things are created for his glory, that he might be known as the one who has supremacy over all things. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Why did God create everything? Why is God ruler over things? So that he might have the supremacy. It's for his glory. Why, is, why does God get to be the ruler? Because not only has he created all things, not only does he sustain all things, but all things are made for him to show that he has the supremacy. When you hear something like that, okay, so God, if God didn't really need anything, if God is complete, and God is just creating just for his own glory, that sounds a bit egotistical. That sounds a bit like you just need to be worshipped, like you just need everybody to know uh, that, that, you know, you're God and that you have supremacy over all things and that you have, the, like that sounds, it, it's very easy to think that. It's very easy to think that God might feel that way or think that way. That's not true. And we're going to find that out because when we talk about this next point, like God's supremacy, Jesus' supremacy over the church, let's look at Jesus' supremacy over the church and it'll show us that God, you know, when everything is made for him, that this isn't some egotistical God saying like, oh, everybody has to know that I'm the big guy around here, that I'm the big guns around here, that sort of thing. No, no, no. When we're talking about that everything is made for his glory, you're going to see that it has nothing to do with egomania or anything like that, but we'll see that uh, has more to do with God's glory being tied to his love for you. Let's look at his supremacy over the church. What is his supremacy over the church? Christ is supreme over the church because we see that Christ is the head of the body. Why does Christ get to be called the head of the church? Or why is Christ uh, supreme over the church, I should say? It's because he's known as the head of the church, the head of the body. For those of you guys who were with us, I think, uh, I think it was the second week uh, that we started. We talked about how Christ has made himself inseparable from the church. That the head cannot be separated from the body. So why would a God like this, who is the firstborn over all creation, meaning, you know, authoritative over all creation, why would God, the one who is king, who, who created all and sustains all and has created everything for himself, why would a God like that make himself inseparable from someone like me? It doesn't sound like egomania. Like, what, what, if I can't do anything for God, if I can't add to him, if I can't, you know, there, what, what can I bring to God to say, okay, now, God, you are fully God. Now, God, you are finally complete. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing that any of us can bring that will allow God to finally be like, ah, now, I can, I can finally be fully God. There's nothing. Yet Christ, when he says that I am the head and this is my body, or that I am the bridegroom and this is my bride, he has made himself completely inseparable from the church. Why would a God this big, this powerful, this mighty, this you know, supreme over everything, make himself completely inseparable from someone like me? That's love. No other reason but love. No other reason that for my glory, I wanted to do this. If I can't add anything to him, if I can't do anything for him, and yet he has made himself inseparable from me, it's only love, it's only love that can do that. So because of that, Christ can be the head of the church. Christ can reign supreme over the church. What else does he say about it? That Christ is the beginning, and, uh, the beginning of and the firstborn among the dead. In verse 18, again, uh, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. This is referring to Christ, now his resurrection, being the firstborn in this sense. 
The firstborn among the dead. He's talking about Christ's resurrection. And when Christ died and he rose again, he's now bringing about this new humanity. He's now bringing about this new way of life. He's now bringing about this new covenant. And because of Christ's death and his resurrection, how many countless of people have now come into this family of God, have now come into this relationship with the Father, have now come to be known as brothers and sisters of Christ, have now become to be known as in Christ, right? have now have the Holy Spirit now living within us, all because Christ rose from the dead. Because Christ did exactly what he said he was going to do. He rose from the dead. Because of his sacrifice, he is now the firstborn. He is now the first of this new creation, of this new covenant to, to raise from the dead. And because of him, we now too will raise from the dead. Rise to eternal life. Why does Christ get to be known as the, the head of the church? Or Christ get to be known as supreme over the church? Because he was the first. The firstborn. The first one to raise from the dead to bring about life. Because he lives, we now live. Because of his sacrifice, my sins atoned for. I now stand righteous before the Father. I now stand clean before God. All because he rose from the dead. Since he rose first, he gets supremacy. Why else does Christ get to be supreme over the church? It says that he reconciled all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. That was the final verse that we read, verse 20. Reconciled all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. So again, picture this. This kind of God, who reigns supreme over everything, who is the king over everything, who is authoritative over, over everything, who created all things, sustains all things, everything is supposed to be for his glory. This kind of God came down to our level to a creation that rebelled against the one who created all and is sustaining all, who, who, who made everything to, to, to be for his glory. He came down to our level, brought peace for us with the Father through violence. What happened on the cross was pure violence. It was absolute violence. It was absolute horrific what happened to Christ on that cross. We should never take that for granted. We should never take that lightly. What happened to Christ on that cross was not cute. What happened to Christ on that cross was not easy. What happened to Christ on that cross was, was horrible. He suffered in every sense of the word. And yet because he suffered, because he experienced that, peace has been brought to us. We have peace now. He reconciled us, meaning he brought us back together. He creates us. We run away from him. He pays the price to bring us back to him. Why does Christ get to be supreme over the church? Because of that. He created us to live for him, for his glory, to be with him, to enjoy him and all that. And what did we do? We said no. And so what does Christ do? He comes down to our level to pay the price that must be paid so that that relationship can be restored once again. Why does Christ get to be head over the church? Exactly because of that. Because he paid for what was already his. He brought back to himself what was already rightfully his. If God is just full of himself, if God is just some egotistical maniac who's just out here like all things are for me and everybody just has to, if God is just full of himself, why does he display his love towards creation like this? Why would he? It doesn't make sense. And if God is just some God who's just full of himself and all things are for me and I'm just here to just show off and I'm just here to do this and I'm just here to do this, like, then why display love to his creation like this? 
Why reconcile creation back to himself if, if he's just full of himself? Doesn't make sense. God being glorified in all things is not, being God, is not God being full of himself. His glory is being displayed in the immense love that he has for each and every one of us. When God shows his love to you, that is actually God being glorified in this. That is, God, uh, that is all things pointing to him, to his goodness, to his mercy, to his salvation. When God is showing his love to you, his love that is so deep, so wide, so long, so high, that is actually God being glorified in that moment. So God can't be full of himself. If he's going to show love that way, it can't be. God directly ties your greatest good to his glory. So if God is full of himself, why tie your good to his glory? No, if, if your good doesn't, if God is just full of himself, then he doesn't care about your good. But because God does care about your good, he ultimately says, your greatest good is tied to me being glorified. I will come down on a cross I will pay for your sins so that this relationship would be restored once again. Your good tied to his glory. Christ is supreme over all creation, over all things. Christ supreme over the church. So what's the point? Okay, great. He's the king. So what? What is the point? If I know Jesus to be supreme, if I know Jesus to be this kind of king, if I know Jesus to really, I mean, I'm talking like power that you can't imagine, authority that you can't imagine. If I, if I know Jesus to be king overall, if I really see him rightly, if I really see him for who he truly is, one, I'm not going to waste time trying to add to him or take away from him. One of the biggest problems that we, uh, if you guys remember, as we were kind of introducing the book of Colossians, one of the biggest problems that the church of Col uh, Colossae had was they were trying to say it's Christ and. Right? In order for me to be saved, I have to know Christ, I have to believe in Christ and believe in his salvation and believe in this gospel, and I have to do really good things. Or I have to know Christ and believe Christ and these all things, and then, and I have to beat myself. I have to like cut my skin and I have to whip my back and I have to do all these things. I have to like cause myself, yeah, I have to take away from myself. I have to fast all the time and I have to, to, to really just, I mean, just put myself through anguish and torture and all these kinds of things so that then I can be saved. Then I can have this relationship with God. Or it's a, I have to believe in Christ and it was, no. There is no Christ and. If I see Christ rightly, as this kind of king, then I'm not going to waste time trying to add to him. Lord, if I just do this for you, then you will love me. If I just do this for you, then you will save me. Garbage. Has nothing to do with that. It's only Christ. If I see him for who he truly is, I'm not going to try and waste time to, you know, taking away from or trying to add to him to say it's Christ plus. It's just Christ. And in the same token, if I see him rightly, I'm not going to try and, and waste time taking away from him. Ah, he's really not that great. Uh, he's really not that kind of person. Or he's really, you know, he really can't do as he says he's going to do. Or he's really not going to save me. Or he really can't help me. Or he really can't provide for me. Or he really can't do. No, if I see Christ rightly, that he is this kind of king. That he has this kind of authority. That he does reign supreme over everyone and everything. I'm not going to waste time trying to take away from him. No, no, God, you are who you say you are. You do what you say you will do. And I am not going to sit here and think that, oh, God, you, can't you can save them, but you can't save me. You can help them, but you can't help me. You can, you can provide for them, but you can't provide for me. You can love them, but you can't love me. No. This kind of God, if, if I see him rightly, 
No, your sacrifice is more than enough for even for someone like me. Your, your love can satisfy even someone like me, even the hardest heart like me. Your, your, your love can truly wipe away the sins of even someone like me. But Lord, do you know what it is that I've done? Do you know what it is that I've gone through? He does. He's supreme over everything. And yet still knowing all that you've done, all that you've been through, all that you've ever even thought, even your thoughts, he knows everything. He's supreme over it all. God like that is big enough to save even someone like you, someone like me. If I see him rightly, I'm not going to waste time trying to take away or trying to add to him. He's good enough as it is. And two, what's the point? If I see him for who he really is, I'll respond in worship. I'll respond the way that God is looking for, with worship. I will live the life, as, as we talked about last week, I will begin to live the life that is worthy of and pleasing to him. If I see him, God, this is who you really are. This kind of king, this kind of authority, this kind of power would really come down and reconcile me through blood, through violence on a cross. You would show love to someone like me like this. I have to know you. I want to worship you. I want to live a life that is pleasing to you and worthy of you. I want to submit to you. I need to submit to you. You're the king. I want to, I will run to him in my time of trouble. If I see him as a God like this, oh, you're big enough to handle my trouble. I'm not going to waste time trying to run away from him. No, I'm going to go straight to you. You are, you are big enough to handle this. When things are great, I'm going to run to him because you are big enough to see exactly what it is that I'm going through. You are big enough to delight in, in what it is that I'm going through. You see what it is that I'm going through. I'll sing to him. I'll take time to know him. I will trust him when nothing else makes sense. God, if you are this big, I may not understand anything, but I know you're big enough too, to understand everything. So I'll trust you. My life will point to him because I'm beginning to find out that's the whole point. Why am I created? Why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? All, like, why am I supposed to live for him? Because that's the point. All things were created for him. When we live a life that is counter to that, we're actually living a life that is counter to how we were designed. God has called us to live for him. Not because, again, he's some egotistical man. No, because he knows what's best for you. He loves you more than anyone else. And when we live for him, when we are living a life that honors him, when we live a life that points to him, not only is he being glorified, but again, going back to our earlier point, it's for your good. It's for your greatest good. And when I see him rightly, when I see him as this kind of king, as this kind of king that Paul points out, as this big, powerful, mighty, authoritative, loving king, I begin to realize that the point is this, to live for him. Simply to live for him. And living a life apart from that, it's counterproductive. It's counter to what you were designed to do. You were designed to know him. You are designed to live in relationship with Him. You are designed to live for Him. For Him. And with Him. It is a little bit shorter for today, and I, I wanted to do that on purpose. Because there's a lot that's, that's covered. But the main point is that Christ is King. Know Him as such. If you don't know Him as King, know Him as King. Take that time to know Him as King. The more that you do, 
The more that you know him as king, the more Christ begins to reveal who you're supposed to be. This isn't in my notes. I really feel like this is the Lord right now. Well, hopefully it was the Lord earlier too, but you get what I'm saying. The more you get to know Christ as king, the more you get to know who God is, the more you get to see him rightly, the more Christ begins to reveal who you are supposed to be. One of the things that we covered last week was God's will. Right? What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for your life? That is such a big question that I know each and every one of us have. Like, why am I here? Why did you create me? Did you really create me uniquely from everybody else that is here? Everybody else that is on this earth. Is that true, God? The more you get to know him for who he is, the more you get to know him as king, the more he begins to reveal who you're supposed to be. Get to know the one who created you. Get to know the one who called you and formed you before your parents even knew each other. He knew you before your parents knew each other. He knew you. The more you get to know him, the more he begins to reveal you. What you're supposed to you know, the kind of life that you're supposed to live. The kind of places that you're supposed to move to. The kind of job that maybe you're supposed to take. The kind of person that you want to marry. The more you get to know him, the more he begins to reveal you. Get to know him as king. Worship him as king. Know him as supreme over your life, over all life. Know him as supreme and I promise you, he begins to reveal to you exactly who he's made you to be. Two more things, two more verses. Psalm 37, I closed with this verse actually in the high school service earlier, but it's coming to me right now. Psalm 37 verse 23 says this, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. He makes firm those steps. Okay, listen to that again. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Every single one of us, we take steps. Right? We're all taking steps. Whether we know God or not, whether we believe him or not, whether we worship him or not, whether we acknowledge him or not, doesn't matter. Every single one of us, we're all taking steps in life. Right? Towards something. When you delight in God, meaning this, when you live for him, when you begin to live in relationship with him. When I say live for him, not as like, okay, God, I just have to follow these, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, the, the, the ten commandments. If I just follow those rules, then I'm living in. No, no, no. When I get to know him as this kind of king, as the king who is authoritative and, and big and powerful and loving. The same one who would come down and pay for my sins and, and brought me into this right relationship with him. When I know him as that, when I delight in that, when I grow in the knowledge and experience of that, when I'm delighting in him, it says the Lord makes firm those steps. He's guiding you. Am I supposed to go here or go there? Am I supposed to do this or do that? Am I supposed to live like this or live like that? Am I supposed to? The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. That is huge. That's huge. We have so, this life is hard enough as it is, trying to make all these kinds of decisions that we need to make, big or small. It is, it is so hard as it is. And yet here it says, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Your job, your primary responsibility is not to try to figure out who am I supposed to marry and what job am I supposed to take and what school am I supposed to go to? Do I need to change my major? Do I need to do this? Do I need your primary responsibility is to delight in him. Know him experientially as the king, as the one who is big and mighty and powerful and over all these things and the one who loves you, who came and paid that price for you. Delight in him and he makes firm those steps for you. You don't have to make those decisions by yourself anymore. 
You don't have to live this life by yourself anymore. You don't have to do this on your own. He makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him, delight in him. That's your job. That's God's will for your life. The more you get to do that, the more you begin to do that, the more you live just exactly how God wants you to do it anyway. He makes firm your steps. He guides you. It's exactly what God wants for you. Delight in him. Know him. I'm going to close with this. This verse that we've been uh, calling our prayer verse of the chapter, right? Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. It says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is what God has done for you. There's another gospel in 30 seconds right there for you. This is what God has done for you. If you're having trouble believing that, that like you are really holy in God's sight and you know without blemish, free from accusation, ask God to make that make sense to you. Ask God to help you believe that, Lord, no, truly, I am free. I am clean in your sight. If you, if you know that and you believe that, thank God for that. Take some time to say, Lord, thank you for what it is that you have done for me. Lord, thank you for what it is that you have done for your church. Thank you for what it is that you've done for everyone in this room, for my family, for you know, so on and so forth. If, if it's, you know, you're good there, you know, maybe you've been praying for someone. Lord, I pray that this person would come back to you. This person would know you. This person would come to understand this goodness. They can be free in your, free, without accusation, without blemish in your sight. But they can have a relationship with you. They can be satisfied by you. They can be walking and talking and hearing from you. But I pray that gift for that person. Really, take that verse. We're going to have a verse, for, a different verse for each chapter. But every, every time you pray, take Colossians 1.22 in there with you. Pray that for somebody. Pray that for yourself. We're going to pray that tonight. One more time. It says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. <laughs>